You're listening to The Gateway Church. For more information, please go online to thegatewaychurch.com. Good morning. It's good to be together this morning. It's good to see new friends and old friends and have this chance to gather around God's Word. And, uh, you know, here we are in the, in the midst now of really getting aggressive and searching for a new pastor. And I just want to implore you to please be praying and believing and communicating with uh, the search committee is comprised of the, the formal board. And, uh, you know, we've, we've done the surveys and the small group gatherings and the questions and answer time. Uh, but please bring your concerns uh, to them, and, and, and please be praying. And I want to tell you this about your future pastor. That person is eminently privileged and blessed to worship with you and to lead you. You are a magnificent blessing to me. I've grown so probably overly affectionate uh, with uh, the Gateway Church. And I know the greatest days of this fellowship lie not in its past, but it's in its future. And what a significant contribution to the community of Des Moines it has already been. I believe all the more so it's going to be. <clears throat> We're in the middle of this uh, series. iPad won't unlock. There it goes. They had that trouble a lot in the early church. It was, you know, it's version point one back then, uh, of uh, looking at a different aspect of the Apostles' Creed each week. And we're doing so by looking to John's writings, the, the gospel, the epistles, and the revelation is sort of the underpinning of the concepts. And we're working our way through, not so much line by line in the creed, but concept by concept, developing this sort of gospel vocabulary. And we've, we've talked about faith, what it is to believe in God. Uh, uh, in uh, uh, last week, uh, on the third day, he was raised from the dead, kind of had to take things a little bit out of order. And now we're leaning into uh, what it is, I believe, in creator of heaven and earth, the maker of heaven and earth. What is it to uh, have and see and obey and trust and live into God is our creator, the creator of heaven and earth. What exactly does that mean? And again, by way of attribution, we're leaning real heavy into a series preached by Tim Keller that sort of followed this same uh, framework. And so we're going to find three things in this passage this morning. First of all, what does the Bible teach about creation? And then how do we practice this biblical teaching? And then the third thing, how can we be empowered to live uh, this teaching out in our everyday lives. First of all, the, the Bible's uh, teaching about creation is not how God created the world, but why. It's not in the method, but in the meaning, and that's important to hold in our heart as we lean into this, because a lot of people want to make it all about the method by insisting that the world was created in a period of seven 24-hour literal days during a certain, an exact certain number of years ago. They say, well, that's what the Bible teaches, and I'm not interpreting Genesis 1 
uh, this morning. Instead, we're looking at John 1 as uh, Whitney read because I want us to look at the meaning of creation rather than the method. The Bible just doesn't say that much about when or how God created the world. And some people, they insist, just to add up all the genealogies. You know that part of the Bible where so-and-so begat so-and-so all the way back uh, to Adam. Uh, can't you just do the math and add those up and work your way back and find out, in fact, yesterday, according to tradition, uh, the world was, and I looked it up, 6,996 created 6,996, according to this particular uh, 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 tradition. We don't, we don't really know. Because you can't really follow that method in, because in Matthew 1, for example, it says Jehoram was the father of Uzziah. But when you go back to 2 Kings, where the historian records, you see that Jehoram was actually four generations before uh, Uzziah. He was the great, great, great grandfather. Uh, well, isn't that an error? No. Because the point is that the genealogies simply are not complete. When the Bible gives us genealogies uh, to say so-and-so begat so-and-so doesn't always mean the immediate father, but rather it means the ancestor. Therefore, we, we can't really uh, know how far back Adam lived because uh, we weren't given that much uh, detail of how, when, and exactly what happened with precise information. And I'm not trying to tell you one thing or another about evolution uh, this morning. <clears throat> what the Bible is more concerned about is not how, but why. Not the method, but the meaning. And the Bible is beautiful at showing us how you and I are supposed to relate to the physical world around us and nature. And this sets Christianity apart from all of the other world religions in a remarkable way. Okay, so first of all, number one, what does the Bible teach about creation? Four things, uh, real quick, and then we'll drill down into this practice in our lives. The Bible says that God created the world. My body, your body, everything we see, the entire physical world, the laws that govern it, all of nature, and it teaches that it's real, that it's good, that it's divine, di di ever had one of those days? Designed, it's, it's real good, designed, and finite. It's real as opposed to the teachings of pantheism. It's good as opposed to the teachings of legalism. It's designed as opposed to the teachings of secularism. And it's finite as opposed to the teachings of paganism. Okay, let's get started. It's real as opposed to the teachings of pantheism. Eastern religions, what we, you could call pantheism, suggest that the material world is only an illusion, <clears throat> that there never was a creation, uh, that the physical world and the laws that govern it are basically all illusions and that we're all part of the great all soul. That's the essence of many of the main Eastern world religions. Pantheistic religions have always been very attractive to we in the West because they tend to say, if you could just overcome this illusion you, if you, the, of the physical, if you could somehow transcend it, in fact, they say you can transcend it, and that's the premise 
of the movie uh, The Matrix, right? Remember? The physical reality uh, that you see really isn't there. The Matrix, Monsters Incorporated. Same movie? Think about it. Laughter, uh, energy. Anyway, um, <clears throat> that it's, uh, isn't actually therefore there. And if somehow you could transcend it, then you could, man, you could fly, you could dodge bullets, you could do all kinds of really groovy things. There's another or there is a number, rather, of Western uh, versions of pantheism that talk about how you can create your own reality. But the biblical doctrine of creation is that creation, in fact, is real. And here we look to what John said. In the beginning was. More accurately, this could or should be translated, before there was a beginning. Before there was time, there was a time before time in which there were no things. With me? Then suddenly in verse 3, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. All of a sudden, there are things. There weren't things, now there are things. All things were created. In other words, we believe there's a reality that we encounter, and you have to submit to it, the laws of gravity, etc., like that, uh, as opposed to thinking that you yourself are some godlike kind of creature that can trans- transcend known reality. Okay. Real as opposed to pantheism. Now, it's good as opposed to legalism. You might think, well, that's pretty narrow-minded of you, Clegg, to say that all Eastern religions are wrong. I suppose now you're going to say all Western religions are right. No, I'm not. Because when the Bible was being written, all those years ago, when the prophets and apostles were running around and revealing truths about creation, in the East, the physical world was seen as an illusion. But in the West, the physical world was seen as evil. The Greco-Roman world believed that the spirit was good and the body was bad, that the body was somehow a prison of the soul. Therefore, physical pleasure of any kind in that worldview is viewed as guilty before proven innocent. And self-denial and abusing the body was how people found spiritual enlightenment in those days. This view, which is common in many churches today, a tradition I was raised in, is not a biblical view. It's called legalism, and it loves restrictions. Self-denial is not a means to an end, but seen as an end in itself. Stoicism and those kind of things. Denying oneself pleasure is considered virtuous. And that's why many people get confused and buy into the negative will of God theory. And the negative will of God theory is when when faced with a choice, how do I discern which one is God's will? Two things in front of me, which one is God's will? And the the place where you go in your brain space is probably the one that hurts. Probably the one that's miserable. Probably the one that's completely unpleasant. That must be God's will for me. But the Bible shows from the very beginning God, with his hands in the dirt. Hold with me for a second. And this is one of the primary reasons that the Greco-Roman world struggled 
to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because their myths said creation is either this cosmic accident or it was an act of rebellion by some of the lesser gods. And whoop, you got reality. But in the Bible, in fact, God's hands are intimately involved and down in the dirt. And then God sends his son. In other words, here's the word, right? Before all things, And then Jesus, down in verse 10, he comes into the world. In verse 14, the word becomes flesh. God is so committed to the goodness of his creation that he enters into it. He seeks to redeem it. He wants to renew it. He goes so far as to resurrect it. In Revelation, he recreates physical paradise. Only Christianity contains a physical paradise. Paradise, the eternal kingdom of God, the future God is bringing is a physical one. We're going to run, not be weary. We're going to dance. We're going to laugh. We're going to hug. We're going to eat. Everybody said, yeah. Uh, Because look, in Luke chapter 24, and they're dealing with this in kids' church uh, today. The resurrected Jesus, Luke 24, is having lunch on the beach. Remember that? They're out fishing. Boys, have you caught any fish? And Peter comes, and Jesus is eating. He's in his resurrected state. Why would he's spiritual now, right? Why would he be eating? Because in his resurrected state, it's a physical body. God is, he loves his creation so much, his hands down in the dirt, that even though it got spoiled by sin, he is going to redeem and resurrect it. And the picture of that is seen in the resurrected Christ. That's why Christianity, in the best possible use of the word, is the most materialistic of all religions. Okay, it's real as opposed to teaching of pantheism. It's good as opposed to the teaching of legalism. And here it's designed as opposed to the teachings of secularism. Secularism says, in short, this is, you are, we are, I am, all an accident. My brother is 12 years older than me. I grew up with the notion that, in fact, I might have been an accident. But beyond that, that which is true about you is only, according to secularism, the result of natural selection. It's the result of nothing but blind forces at work. And here's the problem with that point of view, and it's a really big problem. If you believe you, we, this, was not created by design, if you believe that you, we, this, is all an accident, then there is absolutely no way in the world that you can ever talk responsibly with any kind of intellectual honesty about concepts such as right and wrong. Good, bad. You can never talk about justice or injustice, truth or beauty. Why not? Well, think about it. If there's no such thing as a good person or as a bad person, then there's no such thing 
as a good anything. You can never judge good or bad apart from the context of purpose. So, you know, what makes this a good watch unless I know what it's made for? You can't, you can't hammer nails very well with a watch. It's not a hammer. And since you can't pound nails with it, does that mean it's a bad watch? No, it means it's a pretty crummy hammer. Why? Because that's its purpose to tell time. If it can't hammer nails, it's not a bad watch. Therefore, it's meaningless to talk about something being good or bad apart from its purpose. And if that's true, then how would you know you're a good person? How could anyone know they were a good purpose, a good person, person if there was no purpose and everything was the result of an accident? If we have no purpose, if we're nothing but a mistake, there's absolutely no way anyone can say to anybody else at any time what you're doing is bad or wrong or evil or good and priceless and beautiful. If we're an accident and secularism is right, then there's never ever been or will be any sense of right or wrong. Can't say that's unjust, these people have rights, I have individual rights. No, you don't. You're an accident. I'm an accident. The only thing that rules then is power, persuasion, and brute force. But the doctrine of creation says that there is a purpose to you and me and all of the reality we know, and that we are made by design because there is a design, and that's the foundation of right and wrong. You see, a fish is only free not when it's out in the street, but it, when it's in the water for which it was designed. Human beings can only know the liberty of and power of beauty and love found in obedience to Christ when they discover the purpose for which they've been created. Okay, real as opposed to pantheism, good as opposed to legalism, designed as opposed to secularism now, finite as opposed to paganism. <clears throat> pantheism uh, in, ignores creation, legalism disdains it, secularism exploits it, paganism worships it. Paganism is the religion of old Europe before the arrival of Christianity. Paganism is the religion of witchcraft. It has a very positive view of nature, too positive in most ways. It sees all of these incredible energies and it sees the spirit of the mountain, the spirit of the water, the spirit of the trees, the spirit of the wind, and so forth. And it seeks somehow to tap into those spirits and into those energies. The danger here is when you do that, you make creation into an idol. When you don't look beyond the created to the creator, your heart will automatically cling to those things. Because we are meaning-needing machines, and we will try to put meaning in it. And the danger is when you do that, it's, it's like when you say things like, oh, wow, there's nothing at all 
like, like music. I get so much meaning out of music or making music or, or I get so much meaning out of art or my art or nature or sex or love or romance or really anything. In other words, you can get trapped by certain created things and the pleasures involved with them if you don't find the creator, creator behind the pleasure. C.S. Lewis is so right when he says in his great work, The Weight of Glory, the books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust too much to them. It was not in them, it only came through them, and what came through them was longing. If they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into stupid idols, breaking the hearts of its worshipers. For they were not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we've not yet found, the echo of a tune we've not yet learned, news from a country we have never visited. What's he saying, friends? He's saying it'll break your heart in the end. Because look right here in verse 4. It says, in him was life. He created the world. He created the world, but in him was life. In him was light. If you believe the doctrine of creation, you're not going to exploit it like the secularist might. You won't ignore it like the pantheist might. You won't despise it like the legalist might. Nor will you worship it like the pagan might. What should you do? You'll commit yourself to it. Not worship but commit to it, and here we go. If we're to start living as people who really believe God is our creator, and I'm going to press you on this because too many people in our world today are influenced more by secularist, pagan, or legalist uh, approaches than, in particular than they are the biblical one. So how do we practice this biblical teaching that he is our creator? If we really were to live this, we would enjoy creation more. But wait, Tom, didn't you say Jesus and John 2, for example, remember his first miracle, right? And, and anytime you do the first of anything, like if you're running a campaign, it's significant. It means something. Uh, you want to make sure that it, it, it's very symbolic. It take, speaks of the essence of who you are and what you're all about. It's not an extraneous one. It's not accidental. It's not, you know, okay, mom, I'll do this. It's not peripheral or tangential. It's, it's central. And what does Jesus do at his first miracle? The first miracle, he turns enormous jugs of water into what? Wine. And how, do, how did they describe the wine? Best. Excellent. Why'd you keep the, why did you hide this stuff? And now you're bringing out the good stuff. I love what uh, McLaren in his expositions of the scripture talks about this miracle. He said, at his touch, the water blushed. Isn't that cool? Anyway, <clears throat> word nerd alert, sorry. Why did he do this? He did it to take the party to new heights. What? Are you kidding me? No. You see... When Jesus turned water into wine, he's showing that he is the total master of creation, of all physical laws, 
all physical things. He could turn water into wine just because he wanted to. He is the creator, and what does he do with the, his power of creation? He teaches us how to enjoy it. He throws a party. He adds to the party. He comes in. He hits center stage as the Lord of the feast of creation. If you think I'm exaggerating this too much, you can come talk to me afterwards. That's part of the 10-minute party is like, if you want to pick on me about something in the sermon, you can bring that here, and I'll send you to the elders. Uh, no, I, please, I, I, I love that kind of give and take, and, and I, I've never been picked on here much, <laughs> except Nate and Phil. No. Uh, that's the whole point. He, he's teaching us to enjoy creation. If we really believe this, we would be the ones. If you believe the Bible says this about creation, physical pleasure, then what's flipped is it's innocent until proven guilty. Not guilty until proven innocent. Lewis puts it this way. The faint, far-off results of those energies which God's creative rapture implanted in matter when he made the worlds is what we now call pleasure. It's the faint echoes of God's creative power in every good thing we experience. Let's break this down. When God created the world, there was this delirious rapture, the Father and the Son together, and it says in verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was, say it with me, with God. That's the important thing. With is a relational word. With, it's an intimacy word. And the word was God. They together created the world. What's this mean? Withness. It means love and joy, intimacy and communication. In the ESV, verse 18, it says the Father, the Son was by the the, the side of the father and at the side of the and the father was at the side of the son. They had this real close uh, relationship. They were pouring love and joy continually into each other, back and forth. And they decided then, out of that joyous, intimate, loving community, to widen the circle. Let's create others who can be part of this circle. Others who can experience the same joy that we have. That's why when the Father and the Son created the world, their creative joy was implanted into all matter. The residue of that creative joy and intimacy and rapture in things today we now experience as physical pleasure. Listen to Lewis again. And even thus filtered, they are too much for our present management. Pleasure. What would it be to taste at the fountainhead that stream of which even these lower reaches proves to be so intoxicating? That's why, friends, I believe followers of Jesus ought to be the most playful people on the planet. Most able and desirous to enjoy the simplest pleasures of life. The beauty of a sunset, the joy of great music, a terrific meal, the union of a husband and a wife, the joy of a family who struggles and shares together, 
the power of neighboring. New life, physical, the birth of a baby, new life in Christ. We ought to be the ones who can lead the way. Not just say, oh, that felt good, but to know where the glory behind that good feeling came from. Because what it is pointing toward, you are going to experience one day. Nobody has the resources to enjoy the simple pleasures of life more than those following Jesus Christ. If you believe in the doctrine of creation, not only would we be incredible enjoyers of nature and of creation, but we'd also be incredible rebuilders of it. Lewis also said, confronted with a cancer or a slum, the pantheist can say, if you could only see it from the divine point of view, you would realize that this is also God. Now he's being fair. You know, he says the pantheist or the Eastern religion person would take a look at a slum or a cancer and say, well, you know, this is just an illusion. Someday we'll be able to transcend this. Listen to the rest. Confronted with a cancer or a slum, the pantheist can say if you could only see it from the divine point of view, you could realize that this, is all, this also is God. The Christian replies, don't talk damn nonsense. For Christianity is a fighting religion. It thinks God made the world, but it also thinks that a great many things have gone wrong with the world that God made and that God insists and insists very loudly on our putting them right again. Why do you swear right in the middle of a sermon? By the way, if you use words the way the Bible uses them, it's not really swearing. So said my grandmother. Uh, Because if you believe in the doctrine of creation, you understand the doctrine of creation, then you get really angry when you see cancer or a slum or the other things that destroy and deprave the dignity of persons. God is so committed to creation that he sent his son God is so committed to creation that he would suffer. He wants to resurrect, rehabilitate, rescue, renew, resurrect it. If you look at cancer or a slum, man, Brett, we're all so sorry at the passing of your grandfather this week. We just want you to know you're not alone carrying that burden. That doesn't mean this stuff goes away, right? In fact, it's part of what makes you angry when somebody dies. If it doesn't make you angry, there's something wrong. And you're just not committed to his creation like he wants you to be. You don't see that this is what God created and it's broken and he wants it mended And if you see his commitment to creation, you too would be committed to creation because you would be with him a rebuilder of it. A pantheist, a secularist, a pagan, 
Sounds like a setup for a joke, doesn't it? A pantheist, secularist, a pagan might all be involved in trying to heal disease and trying to get rid of poverty, but being involved by being involved with you know, social justice and so forth. But Christians have far more resources than, their, than just the doctrine of creation to get involved, to get mad at cancer and to get mad at slums, and to say, I'm going to do something about this. i got to do something about this. That's why we cannot help but be involved with things like the Aruna Run and doing our dead-level very best to try to put a dead stop to slave sex, sex slavery, in this case in India, or why we're so passionate about international justice mis- ministry, or Joppa, or to send missionaries to the four corners of the world, because we can't not do this. Something compels us. And we also can't end the sermon right here, so I'll keep going. We would not only grow in our desire to rebuild it, we would also grow in our desire to conserve it. Psalm 19, verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God. Everything in nature reflects the glory of God in some way. But now, when a Christian considers her or his relationship to nature, not to trample it, not to exploit it, but rather to help nature itself be, so it too can praise God, which means we have a tremendously deep theological premise for being committed to caring for creation. Why aren't more people involved in social justice? Why aren't more involved in conserving nature? Why aren't Christians more playful? Why aren't we the ones who enjoy pleasure and take pleasure in pleasure more than everyone else? Why not? And this is where we pivot into how can we be empowered to live out this truth? Here's the answer. It's not enough to simply know God is a creator. He created things, yada, yada, yada. We're never going to be committed to creation until we see how the creator was committed to us as part of his creation. If you take a look at verses 1 and 2, you get a little insight into the very life of God and what it cost him to take us, his creation, and do something about our destruction, sin, and do something about our brokenness, and do something about what's wrong with us. We're told in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Remember what he said? In verse 18, he restates the Word was with. The Word was with, that intimacy word, that relationship word. And in the NIV, in verse 18, The son, not just standing by, the son was in the bosom of the father. And here's what's going on. When the father and son are in the bosom of each other, they don't have bodies. What it says, they were in each other's bosom for all eternity. Co-mingled, together, separate, yet together. Absolute and complete love and joy and delight in one another. If somebody comes up to me and says, you know, after this service, I hate you, I hate this church, I'm never going to come back. You know, I, I, I would think about that for a little while. If we'd never met, you know, I'd 
my feelings get a little bruise on them, but I'd, I'd probably get over it. But if we'd been friends for some time and you said, I hate you, I'm out, that, that would hurt. If we'd, if we'd gone to elementary school together and known each other all our lives and you said, I, I hate you, that would, that would hurt even more. I'd feel bad even longer. The deeper the intimacy, the greater the pain, the misery, the emotional violence at the end of the relationship. The father and son were together for all eternity, before time, forever. And everybody knows a divorce is the most traumatic thing a human being could ever go through. In marriage, you're connected for so many years. The father and son were connected, period. And when Christ came to earth and was rejected by men... Though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him, and then ultimately, on the cross, rejected by his very own father. That's just exactly how committed God is to his creation, including you and me. And until we see that, until we see that... Not just that God was creator in general, but that Jesus was creator, was willing to be uncreated, to be pulled to pieces so that you and I could be recreated. Until you see that, you're either going to be scared of creation or you're going to be addicted to it. Paul says in 1 Timothy 4.3, he talks of people whose consciousness had been seared with an iron. Seared. Who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. What's he saying? If your conscience is bad, if you don't know that God loves you, if you're not absolutely sure God loves you, if you don't absolutely if you know you're if you don't absolutely know you're accepted by him you're going to be a forbidder your posture with everything will be got to stop that and see unless you know that you know down deep in your knower that God loves you and what you're going to do with pleasure when it comes your way is you're going to believe I have to say, you're not going to believe that you have to say no to everything. But if you don't know that, that's an automatic response of some personalities to reassure themselves that they're good is to just live in denial of everything that is good and a harsh, stoic kind of existence. Until you know that God really does love you until you see the creator was willing to be uncreated so that you could be recreated until you see that kind of commitment to you personally. On the one hand, you're either going to be afraid of pleasure or, and, and restrict yourself, or on the other hand, like Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 7, from now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and for those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it, for the present form of this world is passing away. What does that mean? 
Let those who have wives live as if they had none. Let those who rejoice as if they were not rejoicing. What he's saying, if you understand the gospel, then you're going to be able to hold loosely everything in creation. You're not going to look at your spouse or your significant other and say, you are my creator. You are my maker. You give me identity. You define my existence. You are my very worth. See, if you're in love, you're not going to turn to your lo- not going to turn your lover into your creator. You're not going to make your identity be only in the fact that there's another person who loves you. As wonderful as that is, and as much residue of God's creative joy that that is, you're going to be able to hold it loosely. If you love music or making music, you're not going to turn music into your salvation. If you have a great career, you're not going to turn your career into your hope. You're going to look at those things and be able to say, no, even though these are wonderful things and you are a wonderful person, I enjoy them, I enjoy you, but I'm not addicted to them. Why? Because they cannot save me. Let's wrap this up. Only the one who, though he was the creator, was uncreated so that you and I could be recreated. Unless you really, really know that, you're either going to be afraid of pleasure or you're going to be addicted to pleasure. You're going to be afraid of nature and creative things or you're going to make them far too important to yourself. So this morning, friends, Acknowledge Jesus Christ as your creator. You see, it's one thing to say, I believe he's my savior. It's another thing to understand the full ramifications of the great truth of I believe in God, creator of heaven and earth. This has been another episode of the Gateway Church Podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.